the thing about queerness that's so beautiful is that it's all about your imagination and it's all about your spirit and it's all about who you connect with because you have lived within the same legacy and the same journey as this group of people that have come before you. Hi, I'm Ankita Verma, and you're listening to Gen BIPOC. Gen BIPOC is a podcast where I talk to young people who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color about their lives, dreams, and vulnerabilities. This week on Gen BIPOC, I talked to Tori Hong, who is a Minneapolis-based artist. I started following Tori on Instagram a few months ago, and based on the content she was posting, I thought that she would be a really interesting person to chat with on the podcast. And so I reached out, and thankfully she said yes, and the rest is history. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Tori. My name is Tori Hong. I am a Hmong and Korean child of refugee and immigrants, born in Minnesota and raised here. I currently live in Minneapolis and I am a freelance illustrator, public artist, and full-time human. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Honestly, I feel like during a time where humanity is... It seems like most people are thinking more about their purpose on Earth. That is so real. (laughs) I was wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about your upbringing and your identity being Hmong and Korean, especially in Minnesota, where there is such a high population of Hmong people and what that was like balancing those two worlds. Yeah. Growing up Hmong and Korean was very... I'm very, very grateful and very happy about who I am and the cultures that I come from. And I think that growing up in the Twin Cities metro area made it both hard and also easier than I think in other parts of the country. Um, So I was born in Minneapolis and lived here till I was six. And that's when my parents got a divorce. And so Up until their divorce, everything felt very cohesive. I had my Korean grandparents that raised my sister and me um, and would cook us meals and speak to us in Korean. And I lived in Minneapolis, so there was a lot of, you know, I was surrounded by, you know, kids of color, youth of color, and really didn't feel like racialized until after the divorce when I moved to Lakeville, um, Minnesota, which is 25 minutes south of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And it was at the time that I moved, I believe like 94% white. And it was an extremely conservative town. And I think it started out as like a farming town. And now, you know, when I, when I grew up there, people were starting to get more wealth and that was a part of, um, so like racism and classism was something that I faced every day, as well as homophobia, even if people didn't know that I was, you know, a little queer girl, like I didn't even know, but there were just remarks about I don't know okay I'm, I'm sorry I'm like kind of going into this but like oh yeah. no worries go into it yeah. <laughs> yeah no it was it was just hard because you know when you're a kid there's no there's no language there wasn't any language for me about what does it mean to be a person of different ethnicities and cultures what does it mean to be queer like I didn't even know that queerness was like a thing until maybe I was like in fifth grade and one of my best friend's friends called me a lesbian. And then I never spoke to that best friend again, or, you know, she never spoke to me again. So Mm -hmm. like, I didn't know that the way I was like, you know, interacting with other, you know, young girls and like my sexuality, because I think even as young kids, we have a sexuality. We have like the erotic energy doesn't just like, oh, yeah, you're 18. All of a sudden you're you're erotic. You're a sexual being like it's something that we develop from a young age. So, yeah, it's not a switch. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it definitely does not obey like the United States like laws. Right. Or ideas mm-hmm. of what sexuality or attraction could be. 
But yeah, so it was really confusing because of the divorce, because of, you know, being raised by my Korean grandparents and living in a really like multicultural city and then having to leave and then go into this like really, really white space and white town all the way until I graduated high school. And it was after the divorce that that's when I started connecting more with my uh, Hmong family. I grew up in an intergenerational household where like my Hmong grandma lived with us. And when she was starting to receive care for her diagnosis with cancer, I also lived with almost all of my aunties at one point or another. They lived in in my house, in my mom's house with my sister and me and even with like a younger cousin who grew up and, you know, I think of as my little brother, basically. And then I would go to like, you know, my Hmong family gatherings. But then I would like go to Hawaii, which is where my dad and my grandparents ended up moving to. And I go to Hawaii and be surrounded by like a lot of Asian people. And there I was seen as like a local. No one ever questioned whether or not I belonged there. And then like my Korean grandparents lived there. So we would eat a ton of Korean food. I'd speak Korean with them. I'd like go to their like, you know, cultural events. So yeah, it felt like being all of these things, being queer, being Hmong, being Korean, like I had to compartmentalize it very often, like whether it was with different family members, whether it was with different communities. And I don't think like anyone in my life intended for that to happen, but just by nature of people not really understanding, I think, a mixed experience, a young queer experience, especially in like the early 2000s. And also just like coming from a child of refugees and immigrants where like mental health, mental wellness, this stuff wasn't talked about back then. I remember like wanting to get therapy when I was in high school for like all of my trauma that I had experienced. Um, And I knew that I was like mentally ill at that point, but like my mom just couldn't, couldn't afford it just due to health insurance and all that stuff. So it's like, I really wish I had therapy at a younger age because I do think that that would have helped me like bring together my identities in a way that would seem more cohesive. But yeah, it did feel very disjointed at times. And even though I love like every single part of myself, I don't think I was able to share every single part of myself with everyone in my life. I really admire you for knowing these things about yourself at such a young age, because I personally feel like, I mean, I totally needed therapy in high school, but I didn't know that, you know, I I wouldn't have thought, you know, I was just an angsty teen Mm -hmm. who was like, what is going on? Why does everything suck? And Something that you said that stuck with me when you were talking about your parents' divorce, I was curious if there's any stigma about divorce in Korean and or Hmong cultures. Yeah, there is and there was really big stigma against divorce in the Hmong community, Um, especially I think as a Hmong woman, it's seen as, well, it's seen as a taboo. You're not supposed to get divorced. And I know that when my mom did get divorced. We were at family Thanksgiving at my cousin's place. And this is a cousin's that we would spend every single weekend over there and we would sleep over every single weekend. But this was after the divorce. It was Thanksgiving and my sister and I wanted to spend the night. And my mom's like, no, we're going to go home. And like we got in the car and I was like, mommy, why can't we spend the night here? And she was like, there are people here who have been talking bad about me because of the divorce. And so, yeah, it was just like even a a topic for, you know, gossip and ridicule at like a family gathering was something that I didn't really understand at the time. But now as an adult and like learning more about my culture and just how I guess historically family and traditionally like family dynamics are So like Hmong people were like people that live in villages, were people that lived in the mountains and still do in Southeast Asia. So like when you live in a village and there's nothing really governing you except for each other and there aren't really any resources to, you know, like there weren't like divorce courts. Like my mom doesn't even know her birthday because she was just born on the farm. Mm -hmm. So it's just like when you go through marital hardships in the old country, you speak to your elders or you speak to your family and they give you advice. And the advice generally is like, don't get a divorce, work it out, 
all these things. And then my mom, she's a 1.5 generation refugee. So coming here, she grew up mostly in the United States, but spent some time in, as a child in, in Laos. So like for her, I, I think she had a really hard time like straddling both worlds. Like I, I mean, I think I had a hard time, you know, and I, I think as an adult, I've gotten a lot more accustomed to it. But, you know, I think about my mom and like what she had to go through being Hmong, being a refugee, being a young girl, and then also being American all of a sudden due to, you know, circumstances beyond her control. Anyway, that's just like kind of some backstory to why it is such it is a taboo. It is really hard. Like Hmong people hold relationships the highest, I feel like, in terms of governance and like self-governance. It's like your family model, your family structure, and the ways that Hmong people think about it or relate to each other is super, super complex. And I also think that's why I'm such a people person and why I can think about like social issues in a really complex way and think about relationships in a really complex way. Because like that's what Hmong people like we have done for like thousands of years. So yeah, divorce was really hard on my mom, especially. I don't think my dad, who is Korean, had as much, he didn't have as much stigma at all. Do you think gender played a part with that at all? Yeah, I think gender did play a part. And I wonder, and I I also wonder if my mom was like, if, you know, my dad was Hmong, right? Instead of my, my mom being Hmong. I wonder if like divorce would have even been an option just because of how, just because of patriarchy and like men you know, cis men and in my culture is having more power and control and like expecting a certain, yeah, expecting something out of, out of the woman that they marry. You touched on a bunch of things that reminded me of my own upbringing and experience in my family. But the big thing that I pulled from what you just said was the collectivism in Asian cultures. Mm -hmm. And so when you were talking about being really close with cousins and wanting to stay over and spend the night to hang out with them, but then also living in an intergenerational household, it reminded me growing up and still to this day, I'm really close with some of my cousins. Mm -hmm. They're just extensions of siblings Mm -hmm. to me. It wasn't until I got older and started talking to more friends who said things like, oh, I'm actually not close with my siblings at all. And I just, I don't get that. (laughs) Do you have any siblings? I do. I have a younger sister. Okay, so me too, and we're really close yep. and sound exactly the same, which is its own yes, thing. Yes, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but people get really confused when they listen to us on the phone oh my God, or whatever. So but speaking of intergenerational households, when my sister and I were younger, our paternal grandparents mm-hmm. would come over to the States for about six months at a time mm-hmm. because that's how long their visa would allow them to stay. Mm-hmm. Partially, I'm guessing, to help my parents take care of us, mm-hmm. but um, also you know, just to spend time with their family and I didn't realize how strange that was for Mm. for folks Mm -hmm. because it was just so normal and even more recently in the fall of 2019 I went back for my cousin's wedding Mm -hmm. and we hosted a lot of guests at my grandparents house and there were probably 50 people there and it was really interesting for me to see how I how my definition Mm -hmm. and understanding of my personal space changed Mm -hmm. in the short time I was there because there it was you know no one cared if I was asleep if they needed to come into my room to grab something or they needed to use the bathroom they would just like charge it (laughs) and it just doesn't matter and it was totally Mm -hmm. normal whereas if I said that to someone here or someone did that to me in like my apartment I had guess I'd be like excuse me right 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 (laughs) what are you doing Um, so have you felt that sort of I'm curious about your experience because I feel Mm -hmm. like my understanding of what it means to live in an intergenerational household Mm -hmm. or being a collectivist culture is very specific Mm -hmm. to where my family lives Mm -hmm. um, in terms of their physical locations. But you, your upbringing was like that. So do you feel that sort of Mm -hmm. culture wars now that you live on your own Mm -hmm. and how that's changed your perception of family? Totally. I've been thinking about that more recently with um, especially like this new generation of cousins that, you know, younger cousins that have that have sprouted in my family and how like because of my family being having been upwardly mobile and now almost everyone is middle class, I don't imagine them ever sharing a house again in that way unless it's like 
the youth taking care of their parents or like the parents taking care of their kids and their grandkids or something. But like, I don't know if people would share their houses anymore. I mean, sometimes my cousins and I like will look at like Zillow and we'll like look at huge mansions and be like, okay, like I'll chip in to like live with y'all in this like big mansion. Um, and like, that, right. <laughs> I was like that, that would be so much fun. Like I would love that. But yeah, I do think that like my idea of like home and like space within a home um, and who I can share that with is very different than my childhood. When you mentioned that you are both Korean and Hmong, this reminded me of something that I didn't think about until one of my classes in college. But when folks say that they're, you know, half Korean or half Hmong, the assumption is always that the other half is white. Mm -hmm. And that it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, they're so true. Because I feel like people, I had never up until that point, never heard someone say, oh, you know, I am half mug and half white. It was always just I'm half whatever right. is not white. I'll just say real quick, I don't I don't ever consider myself biracial. Like I know that I'm monoracial. Like I know that both ethnicities are Asian. I'm red as Asian. Like that's never a question. But I do think that in terms of thinking about Asian-ness, I take on a lot of my facial features from my dad, who's Korean. And so I look more East Asian. And that grants me more privilege than if I were to look more, quote unquote, Hmong. And that's something that has been, I think, a point of contention between my cousins and me as we like grew up and like started like whether or not we were politicized in knowing racial differences or not. I mean, like we weren't when we were kids, right? I remember feeling othered because of looking distinctly different from my cousins, my Hmong cousins. And I even look different from my sister. She looks more ambiguously Southeast Asian, like brown Asian in that way than I do. And like, that's like a struggle that I'm not going to ever claim because I know that like, I don't know, I won't say ever, but I know that the way I can move through this world it grants me more privileges than like say my sister or even someone like you who's South Asian, right? So it's just like that sort of understanding has come more recently, like in my adulthood. And because I've been like understanding more of the nuances of, of like Asianness and what it means to be mixed and all that, with that comes like a sort of resentment towards other specifically Asian people who are mixed white but we'll never talk about and never really analyze like what that means not just to them but like societally right because it's mm -hmm. like I'm here trying to make amends with both my Hmong side and my Korean side and also like wrapping that up with queerness and knowing that like there's a lot of different problems with each culture there's a lot of really amazing things that come with each culture and then if I'm going to be a face of Hmong representation and there's no other Hmong people there, I don't think that that's fair necessarily or like that's really authentic. Like if people mm -hmm. want like a mixed Hmong experience, like I can give that. But I will never say like I'm going to speak for all Hmong people because I can't. And like not that any one Hmong person can, but I just know it's different. And so, yeah, when I do like meet other like folks who are people of color and mixed white and like won't acknowledge colorism, won't acknowledge how – having lighter skin and also having more Eurocentric features will grant them more privilege and more access to spaces. And mm -hmm. like, even within like POC spaces, right, being able to talk about what it means to be mixed, what it talk means to be like Asian or whatever. And they're like, you know, their struggles with it. It's just like, yes. And can you please listen to other like mixed people? Like this isn't even my struggle. I will never, ever, ever, ever struggle with like being seen as Asian or not. Like I will always be racialized and like, and then there's like issues with people like trying to like organize BIPOC spaces, but then like being mixed white and then like complaining when like, you know, someone who doesn't have white, you know, in their family um, or in their own phenotypical makeup complaining that other people of color are like being mean to them or like you know whatever and it's like yeah uh, I mean like have you thought about maybe why you know someone might be a little bit more I don't know wary or like unsure or like just cautious when talking to you or like engaging with your space have you thought about why they might be angry and 
Yeah, I honestly, I think that I think that people need to get their heads out of their asses and just like just know that there's more to the struggle than being half white or whatever makeup percentage of whiteness that you have that one may have. Mm -hmm. Something else you mentioned while talking about your identity was your queerness. How has navigating that been being Korean and Hmong and did that involve any conversations with your family? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel really, really grateful and lucky that on both sides of my family, like everyone has been super accepting. On my Korean side, it's a little bit easier because it's just my dad. My grandparents have passed. My aunts live in Japan and in Korea and like I never see them. And even if I were to, like, I don't think it would even be more than just like a meal, you know? So like that's been really easy on my Korean side. And then on my Hmong side, it's been because we all live in the same state, they've been super, super supportive. And also everyone else in my family is either straight or is not out as like queer or trans or anything. So so to bring like a queer partner to my entirely straight and cis family's functions, that in itself has been a little bit – it's been fine for me because I know my family, but I know that sometimes it can make my partners uncomfortable. Not because my family is like outwardly trying to be like homophobic or transphobic or anything, but that's just the nature of being with like a huge straight cis family. It will be <laughs> uncomfortable because the space isn't made for queer and or trans people. But in terms of like personal stuff, being queer has been like – the most amazing gift that I feel like I could have been given. It's like the one thing that ties everything together, like why everything makes sense. Because when you talk about queerness and you talk about ancestry and queerness, so when we talk about ethnic ancestors, it's like, oh yeah, this is like my blood-related dad and my blood-related mom created me. And like from there, there's like these like blood-related generations. And it's like super static. It's relatively well known unless for whatever reason, you know, that history is lost through like war, through trauma, through moving, for some folks through adoption or from never having known their family or whatever, some part of being orphans, stuff like that. Anyway, so when you're talking about like ethnic ancestry, it's like very cut and dry for most folks. And then when you talk about queer ancestry, like it's never – the thing about queerness that's so beautiful is that it's all about your imagination and it's all about your spirit and it's all about who you connect with because you have lived within the same legacy and the same journey as this group of people that have come before you. And so when I think about my queer ancestors, a lot of times they're not Asian. They're not Hmong. They're not Korean because those ancestors have been lost to me. They're back in the old country or they weren't allowed into the United States because of immigration or being refugees. Or if they did come here, they've had to assimilate into whiteness, which is also straightness. It's also cisness. And then they throw people like me, queer folks and trans folks. And like, I'm not saying I'm trans, but they throw people, queer folks away. They throw trans folks away in order to gain power in this country and stability and in order to stay here. And so I don't know any direct queer ancestors. But when I think of the legacy that I come from and how, you know, I don't know my family beyond my grandparents anyway because of war, because of language, because of, you know, relocation, all these things, it almost doesn't matter to me as much anymore because I've got my queerness to fall back on. And I've got those ancestors mm -hmm. who will always hold me. And like so much queer history is erased and lost and forgotten on purpose. Um, so yeah, I don't even remember your question. I just get really emotional thinking about being queer and being Hmong and Korean because like I feel like my life doesn't make sense. Who I am like doesn't make sense or like it didn't when I was born in, in the 90s. Um, and it didn't when I was like growing up. There's a lot more Hmong and Korean couples nowadays and like Hmong and Korean babies that I know that are being born. But like my sister and I were like, we're the only adults that I know that have these identities. And it didn't make sense. And sometimes it still doesn't. But when I think about my queerness and I'm like, yeah, well, shit's not supposed to make sense. Being queer, <laughs> being queer doesn't make sense. Like <laughs> I mean, at least in this like society, 
um, this really rigid and straight and like oppressive society. Like it's not supposed to make sense. And like, that's the beauty of it Mm -hmm. because then it's just like, whatever it means, whatever I want it to mean. Hearing you say all of this makes me wonder how much of your queerness and your identity goes into your artwork. Is there Um, any way that you use your talents as an artist to make sense mm -hmm. of your being and your relationships? Definitely. I think when I first started getting back into art in like 2015 to like 2017, I was very much like, I'm going to recreate memories based on, you know, one side of my family. Or like if it's going to be like a queer piece of art, it's like only going to be queer. And it took me some time as an artist to really like understand that like I mean, I'm still developing it. I'm still developing my style and I'm still developing like my identities and my theories and like trying to like put that into my work and imbue, you know, imbue my queerness into my work and my queer philosophies. But yeah, before it, I feel like it was really, it it wasn't so evident. It was more like I'd create one piece that was Hmong, one piece that was Korean, one piece that was like Steven Universe, one piece that was queer. And then I'd be like, okay, this is Tori. And like, it'd be like separate, you know, pieces of the puzzle. And like, now it's more so like, I have an idea for like a series of self portraits that I really, really want to get into that will combine everything and not make it feel like things have to be over here or over there or like in a different frame or um, in a different piece. Like, I just want it to be all mingling together and like supporting each other and making it so much more like layered and beautiful and different. And I'm starting to flex those muscles slowly but surely in like pieces of art that I've been gifting to friends who are both queer and Southeast Asian. Mm -hmm. And yeah, well, I mean, stay tuned, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you saying that reminds me of the term intersectionality because I feel like Mm -hmm. the way we learn about race, ethnicity, gender, Mm -hmm. sexuality is just putting people into boxes and not recognizing that you have all of these different aspects that make up your identity. And even I feel like in the age of Instagram infographics, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden everyone knows what intersectionality is, but not really what it means. (laughs) Um, Right, right. (laughs) And and so to hear you describe your artwork that way, it's like Mm -hmm. even like artists struggle, (laughs) you know, the people who are like, even for people who are introduced to these concepts beforehand, it's like, mm. okay, how how do I apply this to myself and know that I'm more than just what the census mm. wants me to write? Right. Totally. And I will add, too, that I think that the queerness in my art, you know, I was never like a rainbow gay. Like, I didn't grow up feeling very connected to gayness because to me it felt like white, cis, male ways of being queer. And so, like, I never grew up, like, wearing rainbows. Like, now I have, like, a pair of rainbow earrings that are shaped into hearts. They're super cute. But, like, you know, now I'll, like, proudly wear rainbow in, like, doses. But, like, I never grew up being that kind of queer person. And so, for me, like, in that same vein, I don't necessarily draw things that are, like, that have, like, rainbows or all these markers that's, like, oh, that's gay, that's queer, whatever. Because I do think it's – a really white way of thinking about it, right? Like, oh, yes, like, I don't have a a race or ethnicity that deviates from, like, the mainstream, but I'm gay, so here's my color. Like, I'm rainbow, you know? (laughs) And um, I don't don't really resonate with that, but the way that I think about my art and, like, the reason why I think it's queer is because I will always challenge myself to, like, push and put together ideas that seem like they shouldn't be together or like ideas that like maybe people are like oh this is a good idea and that's a good idea but they're seen as like separate again it's like those oh Mm -hmm. putting things into boxes for me I always try to push things together and like make them make sense together even if it's not like an explicitly queer art piece the fact that I'm like even trying to put things that like are pushing the boundaries of what should be in the same frame or the same image together that is what I think is queer for me. Mm-hmm. And what have you been working on now or lately in terms of your art? Yes. Oh my gosh. I've been having the time of my life drawing my queer Southeast Asian friends. And Aww. yeah, I it's been, 
<laughs> it's been such a joy and like being able to think about depicting them in ways that you know they've either requested or ways that I think would be really empowering to them so like just this past week I finished up a portrait of of one of my dear friends saying who is a queer non-binary Hmong artist and healer and like friend and They've been telling me about the joys that they've been having, like raising their nieces and nephews that are like one and two years old. And I was like, oh, you know, we were just talking about like, oh, how do you call yourself? Do you think of yourself as like auntie, uncle, you know, nuncle, whatever, you know? And they were like telling me what they thought. And they're like, also, I consider myself kind of like a sailor senshi, like a guardian in that way. And so I was like, oh, fuck yeah. It's your birthday. I know exactly what I'm going to do. Like, And I drew my friend as a Hmong sailor senshi. I combined the sailor moon uniforms with the traditional Hmong outfits that we wear during the new year. And, you know, made our beautifully patterned and sewn skirts super short because, like, that's what sailor senshis wear. <laughs> and then- And like in both the sailor uniform and in the Hmong traditional clothing, there's like a part on the back of the neck that we in Hmong, we call it the collar. And it's like this part that kind of like, I mean, like, and my friend who's Japanese, she was like, oh, yeah, that's the part that flaps, right? Like, it's like this like part of the uniform that just like sits on the back and like flaps around and stuff. And like, I was like, oh, well, that could just translate directly into like a Hmong collar of our like traditional outfits and then so like it's just like finding these ties and these relations between like these different like textiles and like translating it into into queerness first of all into like non-binary fabulousness and also just like so deeply imbued in like Hmong culture because it's all sorts of patterns all sorts of textiles so much color throughout that portrait that I drew of saying. So that has been giving me like so much joy is just imagining some of my very closest friends as something like magical and out of this world because they are. And this reminds me, just seeing how much joy your art brings you, especially for other people in your life, um, Mm -hmm. just reminding me of the power and the healing of art, especially all of the murals that rose after George Floyd Mm -hmm. was murdered in Minneapolis. So can you talk about how, if at all, seeing so much art pop up around the Twin Cities has affected your production of art or your purpose Mm -hmm. in what you do? Yeah, I think that the mural art that popped up after George Floyd, there's a lot of conversations with Twin Cities BIPOC muralists. There's just been like conversations about like, even the mural that was painted on 38th in Chicago of George Floyd, and it's the one that's become like worldwide iconic. It's like blue and orange, and it has a portrait of his face on it. And people had learned that none of the artists who painted that were Black, Some may have been people of color, but none of them were black. And so that has just really like sparked conversations for me and like amongst this group of muralists of like who gets to like, who gets to take up space first of all, and who gets to control the narrative or how, you know, certain communities are depicted. And anyway, with all these murals that have been popping up, it's both been like, wow, some of them have been like truly breathtaking and beautiful and like helped inform and inspire me as like an artist and a muralist. And then some of them, it's just like, why do you think that this is your time and space? Like there was something that was painted on Kmart, this white woman from Woodbury painted and it was like a black person hugging a cop and like taking a yeah. selfie with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, what the Kmart- was that? What was that? It was like such I just, mockery. Uh, I wanted to scream. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's like, you know, there's like really, really beautiful tributes. Were they the right people to have painted that? Personally, I don't think so, but it's become an icon. So like, we're going to do our best to keep it and preserve it. And then, you know, there's people that are like extremely off base who just think like, oh, well, I'm an artist and I like want to say something so like I can say it. But the thing with public art is that it's public. So you have to think about your audience and you have to think Mm -hmm. about the impacts it's going to make on these communities and be thoughtful about it. Again, like I also am a mural artist and like I'm not a black person. So I've been really thoughtful about 
the mural projects that like I've been wanting to take on. I'm doing one right now with a group of, there's four of us and two of us are Southeast Asian. We're all queer. There's other two muralists that, that are black. And like, we are painting a series of murals that center queerness and that center blackness and like the joys and the magic and the connectedness, you know, the community support that surrounds those identities. And for me, like it was really important to do this project with folks who actually have experiences as black people, as queer Mm -hmm. people. And it's been a lot, a little bit more of like a rockier process, not because of necessarily the muralists themselves, but just because of the conditions we're working in. We're painting this mural for two white folks who Mm. have like adopted black children who are, you know, one of them is queer. And so like we have run into some issues with the folks who have like, who've commissioned us to do this mural. But in the end, we're just like, okay, we're making these images for the youth. This is for the young people. This is for the communities that that need to see it. This is not for the white folks, ultimately. We're going to control the narrative of what we share, how we talk about it, what we even paint and depict. And I've tried to take more of a backseat role in the process of just like providing. So I'm the most seasoned muralist on this team. So just providing like skills, providing the the materials, coaching people through like the sketch process and creating the images and even painting them. So yeah, I, I just see myself more as like a supportive role in this moment than like the actual like I don't know, driver, I guess, of the mural. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's that. (laughs) (laughs) This also reminds me about how I've been thinking a lot about how deeply personal anti-racist work is and Mm -hmm. how easy it is to read things about what we should do and what we should say, but how different it becomes, especially when it's like in your situation where white folks are paying you there this disconnect between who feels agency to tell you how to make art when the art isn't for them it's all so much more complicated than i think a lot of folks realize and this also reminds me of something that i created recently after mm-hmm. jacob blake was shot i like that night i created an instagram infographic that just had numbers to call email addresses to send emails to and twitter accounts Mm -hmm. to tweet at for justice for him and Mm -hmm. i originally posted it without my instagram handle on it and then i immediately deleted it and thought should i put it on there and just like wrestled with it for probably 10 minutes because i was like this isn't about me right and i want the information to be shared but at the same time these graphics don't pop up out of thin air. Um, right. Someone right. makes them. And mm-hmm. I put a lot of thought into it. Like I intentionally mm-hmm. made it as simple as possible. You know, I use contrast mm-hmm. checker to make sure that the colors are accessible to folks yeah. um, and transcribing the image descriptions. And I very mm-hmm. intentionally chose which offices and elected officials that I thought people should contact in order to be most effective. Mm. And so what I eventually settled on was putting my name in the bottom left corner. It's really Mm. small. You probably wouldn't see it unless you looked for it. I literally intentionally chose colors that I knew weren't compatible for Mm. (laughs) um, accessibility because Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, if someone really looks, whatever, they'll find it. Right. At the same time, I didn't think that my post was going to go viral, which it did. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And it wasn't until... Demi Lovato posted it that I was like okay well first I was really excited because I was just like this girl has like 96 million followers and I feel like with a lot of other people like Blavity had shared it Marie Claire had shared it and you know those are I would say are more specific and tailored to the United States but Demi Lovato is an international star so I was like okay now everyone across the world knows this and I initially was excited because I was like okay you know like again if people look they can see my name in the bottom left corner and I, I only put my handle on the infographics 
that had the like numbers and emails but I didn't put it on the first one with Jacob Blake's name on it because it's like mm-hmm. hello like that's right. really not about me right and she did tag my profile in her post but then it wasn't until the next day where someone pointed out she did that she hadn't given me credit and I was like what do you mean she tagged me and they yeah. were like look at the rest of her posts and in the rest of the posts that she had reposted she acknowledged that it was a repost in the comments and like tagged the account and it was super obvious that right. it was a repost, but with hers, everyone was <gasps> like, it looks like she just made this oh or my God. that it was hers. Right. And Blavity did the same thing. What? And Slice TV straight up plagiarized me. They like took all of the information and put it on a different yeah. infographic. On a different background. Yeah. But it, all of the info was mine. And I was just like, yeah. you think I'm not like... You yep. didn't do this. Yep. Um, and so I commented on it, but of course, like they didn't say anything and nothing happened of it. But that's something that I have been, to be honest, I was struggling with it. I'm over it now because like whatever, right. Um, right. you know, the information is out there and that was the mm-hmm. point. And mm-hmm. I, it does seem like a lot of people called and emailed because mm-hmm. it has been really hard to get through <laughs> to them. Yeah. But just this idea of what credit means. And I, I feel yeah. like she whether it was her or whoever was managing her account didn't feel right. the need to credit me properly because I don't have nearly as many followers as the other right. accounts she reposted. Like I don't have mm. like thousands or millions of yep. people following my content, but at the same time it was clearly important enough that it made right. her way, you know, like some random yep. Indian girl from the Midwest just like made <laughs> this graphic at three in the morning. And like yep. now it's like all over the internet. So like, I, I would just love to hear your thoughts as an artist about that situation specifically, but also yeah. how you feel about your artwork getting credited and if it's ever been stolen or not credited yeah. properly. Definitely. I have a lot of feelings about this too. I have come into contact with people who who may not have um, taken my art but have taken my words or my ideas and then like mm-hmm. repackaged it into whatever their project was. So for example, I have a zine and this workshop that I created and it's called Writing Our Own Love Letters. And it was like drawn from like years and years of like therapy and then also like just my whole life of journaling to myself and like thinking about the ways that like positive self-talk through writing and through journaling like does impact like our relationship with ourselves and how in high school I used to write hate mail to myself but now I've learned to like turn it into love letters so I can like start talking to myself the ways that like any responsible and like loving adult should be talking to their inner child right (laughs) and so yeah so like it was something that was really really close to my heart and then one of my Instagram followers ended up launching this whole website and this project it took the word love letters and it took the idea and the concept where it was like, you know, write your own love letters to yourself and submit it to this website, kind of like a post secret type thing where people mm-hmm. would submit their love letters anonymously to themselves to this website. And they're like, we're centering queer, trans, people of color, which was like what my love letters workshop was like centered around and like the mm-hmm. zine. And that like just really, that happened maybe in like 2018. So it's been a couple of years and that was like my first major instance of someone like plagiarizing my work and repackaging it. And it just really hurt because this was like from someone who was like in my community, you know, they were another queer person of color. Mm -hmm. And like this has happened again, not just with the love letters workshop or whatever. It's happened with other ideas that I've had, other zines that I've made. And yeah, I just feel really lucky that like nothing of mine that's gone viral like hasn't had my name on it Mm -hmm. slash I feel like I'm like underground enough that like if anyone does steal my work, like it's someone who either has like the same amount of followers as me or like has less. And so like Mm -hmm. I can just contact them. has less. Yeah, that exactly. So I'm just like, hey, like and also there's people that I know usually that have been like you know, whether or not it's been purposeful plagiarizing my work. And so I can have like a really civil conversation about like, hey, this is what happened. Like here are my receipts from like my and like my creation process and like seeing it leak into yours. Can you please just like change this or credit me or whatever? 
so yeah, like, so it's never happened on your scale where it's like been <laughs> someone with like literally almost a hundred million followers, like stealing my shit. I'm really happy to be underground for that reason because mm-hmm. like I don't have to deal with that shit. And like, I feel like I purposely don't make anything that like, I'm just not really interested in like, and not saying that you're interested in like trends or anything, but I'm not a very timely artist. Like I don't really, <laughs> like I'm not making art that like, you know, if, if something happens today, like if I were to make art about it, I'd make it in like three years. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, You're in no rush. Right. I'm in no rush. I'm working on, on my own timeline. So, so yeah, nothing of mine really gets like memefied or like more shared on mass yet yes okay exactly i was about to say not yet but and i mean the two instances that we just described are so different and something that you know stands out for me is that it would cut so much deeper for me if i were in your position where it was people i knew who were using my art and work especially to like advance their own creativity what bothered me the most about Demi Lovato specifically because honestly I wasn't really bothered when Blavity did it I like didn't really I saw that it was being shared like all over the place similarly to what you said by you know a lot of people who had fewer followers than me and I was like whatever but with Demi specifically it really bothered me because it felt like this sort of performative activism from celebrities where they could get away with posting something like this get all of the credit for using their platform for good without even acknowledging the person who made that content right who's I'm just thinking about your identities and how like it's so easy to raise people like you. Exactly. Like us, yeah. And you know, I mean, I guess she tagged me on Instagram, but it's not like people post stuff like that and you go and right. see who's tagged in it to see who might have made it. <laughs> you right. know, like, like no one ever does that. Like no I, one does that. And to be honest, after Chadwick Boseman passed away. I can't remember who I was following or whose profile I ended up on. Some other celebrity. I think it was Darren Chris. But he had posted on his Instagram story a piece of art of Chadwick. And I was just about to repost that one. And I was like, wait, like, I wonder if I can find the actual artist. Like, Darren Chris did not draw this, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. And and so that was when I looked. I was like, maybe he tagged the artist. And he did. And so that's when I, I went to the artist page and shared that one because I know, you know, Instagram yep. algorithms are racist. And, like, the mm-hmm. people who are on the lower end of the stick, their work, their ideas don't get shared even if they're just as, if not more powerful than the people who have yep. platforms. And I was like, I would have never done that had this not just happened to me and like I'm even now more intentional about making sure that I'm citing people from the source Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like from the primary source so all this to say she tagged me on Instagram but she shared it on Twitter too which I realized like days later oh my god and said absolutely nothing and I was just like what and again no one cares about me right I'm just like whatever this person but I just keep thinking one day if I know someone who's really famous (laughs) Yeah. Or if something happens, like this is something to remember because erasure, like this is how erasure happens so easily. And now I'm glad that I deleted the post and put my name on it, even though it was small Mm -hmm. and barely visible, because at Mm -hmm. least for most people, it's there. But it also reminds me of my own worth as someone who started Mm -hmm. to create more graphics and explore more of her artistic side because. I just keep thinking, well, art isn't for me or like, mm-hmm. I, like there's so much public service that's intertwined with a lot of what I've been doing specifically. But then yeah. it's just it's giving credit for my labor. It's the same way in which people totally. should get paid for their labor yeah. is what I've decided on for now. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I can't even imagine just like the confusion and also like, I don't know. It does just sounds like such like a I would be mad. I'd be like, I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, Demi Lovato, yeah, like she's die. She, you know, like she, she's got mental health. Like she talks about her mental illness, and I'm like, that's awesome. And it's like, wait, Demi really tried to like do you dirty, exactly. And, like, and I went through the same thing. Like initially, I was just like, oh my god, like she shared my shit, and now I'm just like, wait, yeah. what? <laughs> I and I just I went through all of the emotions I went from like excitement to being pissed to now feeling (laughs) indifferent or recognizing that it was wrong and I've learned my lesson and will be better in the future Um, but at at the same time I was just like I was such a huge Camp Rock fan like why'd you do this to me Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) so again like what I said about performative activism and just like the Mm -hmm. disconnect like I 
you know, one of my action items was to tweet. And I was like, I wonder if she tweeted at, at these people. And she didn't. Maybe she called. Maybe she emailed. But I I was just like, how can you say you stand for people from marginalized backgrounds and then yeah. erase a brown woman? I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really, really disappointing. And I'm glad that you you did, you did caught yourself and you're like, okay, I'm going to just put my name super, super tiny, but at least it's there, you know, like, yeah. at least, like it's embedded within the graphics. Right. So. I, I will have to shout out a few of my friends who proofread and fact checked that post for me, who were the ones mm-hmm. who were like, yes, put it on there. Um, and one of my friends who was like, I would have put it on there as like big as the rest of your text. And I was like, girl, no, <laughs> like, I will not. And if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have done it. So thank you. Flora and Jesse for believing in me more than I believed in myself. Um, (laughs) But at the end of the day, it's funny to know that my name will be memorialized on Demi Lovato's Instagram page in like the bottom left hand corner of those graphics (laughs) till like the end of time. It's like, but then I also thought, wait, like, shit, I can never change my Instagram handle now. (laughs) It just says like Ankita underscore 71, like on the corner of all those photos. So I'm just like, I guess this is my brand now. Right. (laughs) Like, I wonder if everyone thinks that my birthday is on July 1st. Like, whatever. Ah, (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) Um, So yeah, you know, we here we are just all doing our best. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Learning as we go. yeah just going back to art have there been any moments where you've created art that was more impactful than you thought it would be or just based on reactions you got you felt wow you know I didn't think this would mean so much to people that kind of like validated what you do as an artist yes totally so there was this piece that I made in 2017 I was one of the core organizers that worked on the MPD 150 project and helped launch it. So that was, that is and was like a Minneapolis police abolition project on the 150th anniversary of the Minneapolis Police Department's founding, which is why we called ourselves MPD 150. Mm-hmm. I just want to interject and say that that is awesome. Like, oh. That is so cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that was, that was in 2017. So yeah. So I helped like I was there since the inception of the organization. I was there for like the next year, year and a half, providing a lot of support and also input. And just like what we did was we created a review of the Minneapolis Police Department, 150 year review of it and talked about like in all the ways that it's like failed us and all the ways that not just failed us, but actively harmed communities of color, Black communities, Native American communities, sex workers, poor people, folks who are disabled, the whole gambit, right? And for me, that was really important because because of my own, like my family's ties with U.S. imperialism and like war, specifically bringing my family here and how the U.S. military is so connected to the police state that we now live in as Americans. And we also decided to launch this project during a time where there wasn't any sort of crisis that we were responding to so that we could just like create this report and like have us like lead the conversation and drive the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, so this was created in 2017. I drew portraits of like several of the MPD 150 organizers and interviewed them on the question, like what does a police free world look like? And so I'd ask, you know, what does it sound like? What do you see on the street? What do you smell? What are you feeling? And from there, I kind of like derived quotes for each of these portraits to have in a little speech bubble. And on the top, there's this banner that says like, what does a police-free world look like? So I created that in 2017. It was a piece that a lot of people responded to and ended up getting published in the report as like a full page spread. And it was something that meant a lot to us in Minneapolis And then in 2020, um, when George Floyd was murdered by the Minneapolis Police Department, that image started resurfacing three years Mm -hmm. later. I reposted it on my Instagram and like I got over, you know, 500 shares and like I got a bunch of new followers and stuff from people seeing this. And that was like the most that still is the most like I've ever quote unquote gone viral. And like I know Mm -hmm. people have also like reposted it on their own stuff, too. And that 
was just like really remarkable to me to know that like something that I created in this like very specific moment of time all of a sudden got reignited and was like used as like part of the movement here in Minneapolis to like get justice for George Floyd to start defunding the police and like reimagining what this world could look like after police don't exist. To hear you talk about that piece I have two big Mm -hmm. takeaways from that Mm -hmm. and The first is how important it is to work on initiatives that you find meaningful and important without having a catalyst to do so. I think that, as you know, abolition is a part of larger discourse now Mm -hmm. in this country as a result of George Floyd, but that doesn't mean these ideas Mm -hmm. hadn't existed previously. It's not like people hadn't written about it or talked about it or created art about it like you did Mm -hmm. and to say you know you never know when this will become important and when these resources this art needs to exist Mm -hmm. when the world is ready for it exactly and also for it to exist for the people who already are ready for it Mm -hmm. and then the second thing I know exactly what image you're talking about and I had no idea that you made that so just to, Mm -hmm. to tie it back with you know giving artists credit for their work it's a lesson in practice and me practicing you know I, I believe that fundamentally artists deserve credit for their work but I clearly didn't look into the artist of that mm-hmm. or just assumed oh, okay it was MPD 150 and I associated yeah. with an organization but not remembering you know there are people who did that um, mm-hmm. like your ideas who built that so yeah just a reminder to everyone practice what you preach I definitely <laughs> didn't in this instance <laughs> Well, that's okay, because we ended up connecting that way. Yeah, exactly. I know now. Um, (laughs) But, like, don't don't let a celebrity steal your shit before you, like, actually start caring. Lesson lesson learned. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But do you have any advice for people who are interested in art but are unsure of where to start or feel like it might not be the best time because of the economy, because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. because of fear of financial stability and art? Yeah. I think for me, my advice would be to just draw what you love. And so for me, it started out with Sailor Moon, honestly, and like trying to create characters like that. Um, And then as I grew up and entered middle school, it started out with drawing Neopets. I don't know if you know about Neopets. (laughs) Do people know about Neopets? I feel like that was huge when I was younger. Right? Same. Yeah. So for any of the listeners, Neopets was like a virtual pet owning website where like you adopted your virtual pet. It was your Neopet. And so like I would draw a bunch of images about like my Neopets that like I created characters, I created designs, they had their backstories. And then from there, like I noticed that there were other pet websites that were starting to like be launched that were looking for artists. And I was literally like 14 and I was like, I'm going to apply to be one of these new websites artists. And like I developed some items and like sent them like my quote unquote portfolio. And like one pet site even was like, sure, we'll work with you if you do it for free. And I'm like, fuck yeah, I'll do it. I'm 14. (laughs) But anyway, this is just to say that like my roots as an illustrator comes from like literally me just like being obsessed with this website as like a 14 year old weirdo girl in Lakeville in like bumfuck nowhere Midwest you know mm-hmm. um, you were bored and- what else were you gonna do <laughs> exactly and then like as I came into adulthood and like I came back into being an artist because like I didn't draw for like years because of mental illness because of oh this isn't gonna be a marketable skill or profession whatever I went back into just doing fan art. So I did a bunch of like Steven Universe fan art and um, studied like how did they create their backgrounds? You know, how do they develop their characters? How do they even draw their feet? You know, because like every TV show has like a different way of drawing feet. And then like from there, I was like, okay, I'm going to draw like portraits of people of color that I see on my Tumblr dash. And like, okay, from there, I'm going to join like the Twin Cities people of color and indigenous people's figure drawing group that used to exist here and then I used to co-coordinate that and then I like you know I applied to be a co-coordinator and then I ended up co-coordinating it I mean it's like what you were what we were talking about earlier which is like when we feel like we have to respond to something the stakes seem so much higher but if we just do something because we like love to do it or because it's something we're passionate about and it's like something we know will like bring us like some sort of relief or like happiness then I feel like 
it makes like life as an artist so much easier because it's like, oh, this next thing that I draw doesn't have to give me, you know, millions of likes or millions of dollars or whatever. Like, it's just the thing I like to draw. And then you'll notice that there are other people who like the thing that you're doing. And then like, you'll find a community or you'll just like impress your friends and family. But from there, you'll build your skills and you'll build your network and you'll build your own worth as an artist if you just like do what the fuck you love to do because chances are there like isn't an artist that loves exactly what you love and can do it in the way that like you can do it so yeah I mean that's not like sound business advice I could give you like (laughs) I could give you real business advice if you want as well but for anyone considering it yeah just start with the things that you love because like the joy that come from each stroke of like your pen or your pencil or your paintbrush, like that's going to be evident. I just hope to achieve the confidence of 14 year old Tori just applying to, to stuff <laughs> on the internet. That's like goals. <laughs> right oh my God. I know. I'm like literally Neopets is like the basis for my business. Like just, 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 just so everyone knows. <laughs> it's, it's one of those words that like, just was retrieved from my distant memory you know like stumble upon or something where it's like oh I know what that is haven't heard of it in 10 years but like yeah sure (laughs) but I used to like look at this obsessively with my friends until like 2 a.m yeah yeah (laughs) another question just out of curiosity but I noticed that when you were talking about your art or stuff that you've worked on in the past or even meaningful life experiences you always started Mm -hmm. out with the year that it occurred yeah is that just something that you're like very mindful of like knowing when things happened in your life yeah yes so knowing the year is really important to me because of my own like personal history and like family trauma of like not knowing so many things because of language barriers because of like I told you earlier my mom doesn't know her birthday Like, she knows her birth year. You know, actually, like, I don't even know if she knows her birth year. Like, she literally came to this country and they were, like, you know, speaking in Hmong to, like, the U.S. people. And they were, like, oh, well, she was born during the time of the rainy season. And, like, she looked about, you know, six or seven years old. So they, like, just assigned her a birthday. And Mm -hmm. on my dad's side, my grandparents could only speak Korean. And, like, my grandpa – like, both of my grandparents are from North Korea, And during the Korean War, did they, like, cross the border in order to, like, fight on the side of, like, South Korea and, like, you know, quote-unquote democracy and independence and stuff? I just say quote-unquote because, like, first of all, war is just, like, shitty. And then, like, secondly, like, the U.S. presence in that war was, like, really messed up. But, you know, my grandpa was fighting for what he thought was right. And, like, so there's just, like, so many details that – are missing for me. So like for me, it's like mm-hmm. a it's a marker of like ownership, agency over like my own life and what's happened in my life. So yeah, as someone who's like child of refugee immigrants and also has PTSD, just to know when things happen and like in what order has been like really important and healing. And I also think informs like the rest of everything I talk about. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that reminds me my mom and my uncle and several other family members Mm -hmm. similarly to your mom Mm -hmm. their legal birthdays are not their actual birthdays Um, my aunt Mm -hmm. they they don't know when her birthday was either Mm -hmm. and they just kind of arbitrarily like put a date on their documents when they came here and to hear you say that just reminds me Mm -hmm. something I do think about a lot is the privilege of knowing who your ancestors are because again similar Mm -hmm. to what you said earlier it's like I know who my grandparents are and then it just kind of ends there you know like Mm -hmm. I don't really know um, what Mm -hmm. else and I never really have gotten the chance to know them um, because they've lived in India but the privilege of knowing the day you were born is like something that I don't think a lot of people even really think about or know and like how I feel like people take it for granted and I even the thought of like celebrating birthdays it's like how do you celebrate something when you aren't really sure that it's there (laughs) Um, yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah thank you for giving me some more to think about what that um because it was one of those things where it's like oh this is just my reality and I didn't think about it too much right like I literally my mom and I were talking about this two days ago about my aunt she's Mm -hmm. like because I was like wait so are you sure that your birthday is on your birthday and she's like I think so Yes. I know. My mom is perpetually like 47. 
Well, to be honest, it might be a blessing in disguise because it's just like, you can't age me, only I can age me. Right. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, it's like, these are things where it's like, I'm not hiding them, but they wouldn't come up unless I'm talking to someone else who knows exactly what I'm talking about. And I feel like, you know, for my friends who are white who are listening to this are probably like, oh, like, I didn't know that. She's never mentioned that. And it's like, of course I haven't. Like, there's actually a lot that falls under this (laughs) umbrella of stuff. So this also just reminds me why I like to do this podcast because in a lot of ways it's really healing for me (laughs) Um, to to chat with other people about this especially you know people I've never met like you (laughs) I know I'm so glad we finally got to meet As I was editing this episode, towards the end, I noticed that Tori said, quote, every TV show has a different way of drawing feet, end quote. And she said it so nonchalantly and in such a matter-of-fact tone that it clearly didn't register while I was interviewing her. But no, I, I didn't know that every TV show has a different way of drawing feet. Like, is that an intuitive thing that everyone should know? All of this to say... I'm definitely paying a lot more attention now to how TV shows draw feet, but also if you have one takeaway from this episode, this should not be it. In any case, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. If you're a fan of Gen BIPOC, subscribe to us on your podcast app, share this episode with your friends and family, and give us a rating or leave a review for future listeners. And if you or someone you know wants to share their story on this podcast, don't hesitate to reach out. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at genbipocpod and visit genbipocpod.com to stream more episodes and provide feedback. We'd love to hear from you.